we're talking about a minority of brokers. But when you've got over a million advisors in this country, even a small percent can cause some devastating harm. That's David Meyer, managing partner of Meyer Wilson and the author of The Investor Protector. The fact that there is an avenue for recovery in situations where there's an inappropriate conduct on behalf of the advisor and a collectible firm, that's what's inspiring. That's why all the lawyers and our staff come to work every day because of the good we can do of fixing problems and helping to restore financial stability to our clients. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with David Meyer to discuss his landmark case that resulted in the largest jury verdict in Ohio history, the choices you can make to protect your financial well-being, and the lessons he learned in his triumphs over financial advisors who lie, cheat, and steal. If somebody gets into a car accident, no one has a problem of seeking out a lawyer and filing a lawsuit to be compensated for their injuries. But for some reason, when that happens in the financial situation, folks are hesitant to acknowledge that they have a problem that was caused by somebody else and they internalize it. So many cases of investment fraud are never pursued because folks are afraid, they're embarrassed, they believe that it was their fault for trusting somebody. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. David Meyer is a nationally recognized trial attorney who's represented thousands of individuals in cases of investment fraud, helping them recover hundreds of millions of dollars. In short, he sues dishonest stockbrokers. We began our conversation by discussing how David ended up focusing his law practice around investment fraud, a niche within a niche. This is a very small niche area, and it started almost 25 years ago. I was working at a small firm. I was actually a tax lawyer. I got my master's degree in tax Uh, And after about two weeks of being a tax lawyer, I realized it wasn't for me. And a uh, gentleman walked in, uh, was referred to my boss. I was only 28 years old. He had a problem with his prudential stockbroker. And my boss turned the case down because uh, we weren't investment fraud lawyers. We were as a business litigation firm. And I'll never forget it. I was walking in the lobby and I literally ran into this gentleman. I think I was going to the restroom and he was walking out to try to find a lawyer. And I started talking to him and he told me about his situation and it was interesting to me. So I asked him if I could have the opportunity just to research it. And I dug in a little bit and uh, I learned that uh, there are claims that you can pursue against a financial advisor for, in this case, it was unauthorized trading. And it turns out as I was speaking to him that he wasn't the only victim of this situation. There were about 250 victims in a small town in Ohio. And as time went on, I, I met with many of them and ended up filing a class action. That case took seven years. And while that case was pending, uh, with the support of the firm uh, where I was working, I started my own firm uh, in about January of 2000 to focus on representing investors who had claims against stockbrokers. And that big case really started my career. We ended up having a jury trial for about a month, uh, and we got a $261 million jury verdict, which I believe is the still the largest jury verdict in the state of Ohio. But that's the case that launched my career and my firm uh, to focus on this practice area. 
Well, quite the case to launch a career. I mean, this you were thrown into the fire, you know, very early on. And look, there's going to be people listening to the podcast and say, well, Dave, that must be nice, right? You know, kicking things off with a $261 million jury verdict. But I want you to speak to what that experience was like, because not only did you fight for seven years, but at the time also, this was an area that was fairly new to you in, in terms of like kind of learning the ins and outs of it. Well, what it, what it taught me, I, mean, I had the opportunity at such a young age to learn something that was just a big passion for me. I grew up as the son of a trial lawyer, a plaintiff's lawyer who did personal injury, medical malpractice cases. So I saw the physical harm caused by the misconduct of others from a traditional personal injury sense. But that particular area of the law, never, just never drawn to it specifically. But learning uh, about people who suffered devastating financial loss as a result of the misconduct of a financial advisor, that just became a real passion of mine. And to have the opportunity to dive in at such a big case at a young age, and really when it came together to, to start my own firm, I got a little bit fortunate with timing. I started my law firm in January 2000. Uh, for those that remember, the stock market crashed a couple months later, and I ended up having about 200 cases uh, you know, within the first three months. So you know, they say timing is everything, and, and I just built my firm from there. But I'm just extremely fortunate to be able to find an area of the law where I could be passionate about the clients I represent and make a difference. And there weren't a lot of lawyers that do this kind of work. And there still really aren't that many today that focus on this area of the law. So it's just been a wonderful ride over the last 25 years. And I was fortunate to have the opportunity to put it all together in a book. And you start the book with the story of this 101-year-old lady, you know, who essentially had her life savings, I think it was over $30 million, swindled away by a stockbroker. If you could speak to that and what that experience was like in terms of like helping her, supporting her, because I believe like with the outcome of that case, you still have that framed in, uh, in your office. Yeah, that wasn't too long ago. It was just a few years ago. I was uh, out west at a conference and I got a call from a lawyer who knew my name because I had spoken at a CLE for lawyers and he was calling me uh, to ask about the case and ask some questions and ultimately brought me in and referred me the case. And this, it's just a remarkable story. This woman, she was a hundred years old at the time that I met her and her husband had invented a uh, product that was uh, extremely uh, beneficial to the government and uh, had a company with, that produced and built this and sold this product and ultimately sold the business. They retired, very conservative folks. Uh, they, didn't, they weren't flashy, they didn't spend a lot of money. He passed away a few years before I met her. Her daughter had passed away, so she was a, a widow. She had no immediate family and she had $30 million. And a broker who had met her through her daughter before her daughter passed, you know, realized she had the money and then she was a, a vulnerable uh, victim being alone and wealthy. And this broker who worked for a large firm swindled her out of $30 million. And uh, my firm was brought in to fight and recover the money. We actually recovered uh, slightly more than $30 million. And uh, I do have the check uh, redacted properly for confidentiality reasons uh, in my office. And that's also in the book. And it's just unbelievably rewarding when I met with uh, her family that was so grateful that uh, we were able to cover this, recover this money, and she was able to uh, maintain her legacy. And I was told at her 102nd birthday party that she asked her nephew, who led the case on behalf of the family, to thank uh, me and my firm again for the great work we do. And there's just real no better feeling than that. 
And I want to talk about like the problem here, or like how the problem really arises in the sense of like how, why this is prevalent, because you would think right in this space between brokers, financial advisors, you think there's standards, there's regulations, like there's, there's, you know, things in place to ensure this stuff doesn't happen. Right. Like these are, when you're mentioning some of these, you know, bad brokers, like these are from very well-known organizations, right? If you could speak to like why this problem even exists. And then of course, also the side of like the defense attorney side too. Well, it all is based on trust. You know, we trust people who are experts in their field to help us navigate the complexities of our life. We go to a doctor, the doctor recommends we take a medicine, the doctor recommends that uh, we have a, a knee replacement surgery. We, you know, we follow the advice of professionals. We do that with accountants. We do that in our daily lives in a lot of ways. Most people are hesitant to try to manage their own money. We work 30, 40, 50 years to build up a nest egg and we just don't have the experience, the education, or really the interest to try to manage the minefield of investments. So we hire folks to manage that. So there's already uh, a situation where you've got a tremendous amount of trust in the financial advisor, and the financial services industry spends unbelievable amount of money to promote that trust. We all see ads of the investment firm where the retirees on the beach with their grandkids and the broker uh, is hard at work, you know, at the office. So they spend a lot of money to promote that trust. So there's already an unequal uh, situation of power because as investors, we're relying on the expertise of, of their broker and we don't understand the specifics of what they're doing and, and how we're doing it. So that dichotomy, unfortunately, sets the stage for those brokers who are deceitful or act uh, inappropriately because they have an opportunity to take advantage of that trust. And this is something that has always been really uh, intriguing to me. If somebody gets into a car accident and uh, they're rear-ended at a stoplight and they suffer some injuries, nobody has any problem, uh, you know, if in fact they have injuries and if in fact uh, these injuries were caused by the negligence of somebody else, no one has a problem of seeking out a lawyer and filing a lawsuit to be compensated for their injuries. But for some reason, when that happens in the financial situation, folks are, particularly elderly folks, are hesitant to acknowledge that they have a problem that was caused by somebody else and they internalize it. So many cases of investment fraud are never pursued because folks are afraid, they're embarrassed, they believe wrongfully most in most cases that it was their fault for trusting somebody. So there's a hesitancy, you know, from a psychological standpoint for folks to actually reach out to a family member or a trust advisor or a lawyer to uh, admit that they may have suffered harm as the result of the misconduct of their professional because psychologically, for whatever reason, as a society, we're less likely to admit that we suffered these losses as a result of the misconduct of other folks. Money can be a touchy subject for many people to talk about, especially when things go wrong. In David's experience, certain individuals are a more common target of investment fraud than others. I asked him to elaborate on why this is the case. Most of my clients are, are senior citizens, they're retirees, and they're, they're really the, the financial exploitation of the elderly is the number one problem in this area because for the most part, they're easy targets. Uh, folks that are retired or elderly, they may be living alone, they may be suffering cognitive decline, and they want to believe that they can be more independent than they may otherwise can, so they're not sharing their financial information. So when you see, and just example of a 100-year-old widow, uh, it's a prime target. They've got the money. You know, the same reason why ro people that rob banks uh, rob banks, because that's where the money is. 
Well, the reason why the elderly are the primary targets for investment fraud is because they've they're the ones that have earned the money over decades of hard work. Uh, and then when you add on the fact that they're often living alone and they have this cognitive decline, uh, it's really the the perfect storm, uh, and that's the biggest problem we're seeing. Yeah, and uh, I know you talk about numerous stories. It's almost like what what an interesting life this has been for you. I, I'd love for you to kind of speak to some of the not not just the stories and experiences you've had, but like I mean, you mentioned to me like there's a point where somebody almost pulled a gun on you. Like this has gotten pretty heated. Yeah, the the stories are really fascinating, and I've been fortunate enough to represent some a lot of brave and amazing clients. And that's the point of the book. I share stories of my clients who, over the past 20 years, have triumphed over unbelievable deceit by their trusted financial advisors and have overcome unthinkable financial loss. And using the stories, I believe we, we learn from shared experiences. Nobody wants lectured. I mean, this book is not a reference guide or a handbook. Nobody wants to read that. But we learn from sharing experiences and learning from what's happened to other people. So this this book, I mean, it definitely has steps to follow that I believe will decrease anyone's chance of becoming a victim of investment fraud. But most importantly, it has the stories of clients that I've had the uh, fortunate opportunity to represent over the past 25 years. And these stories, I believe, are exceptionally interesting. And my hope is that people will be drawn to the stories and then as they will learn a lesson sort of by default, they'll accidentally learn a lesson that will help them or their family members, or if they're a lawyer or a financial advisor, their clients, uh, it'll help them because now they, they've seen these things happen and they'll be better protected. I really think this book is body armor for the retirement savers. It will protect them. It will help them. But I do it through sharing stories. Or my goal is by sharing these stories. I have these cases. They've been in my file in my file room and in our computer for 20 years. And it's really it's rewarding to be able to fix problems. But when somebody is referred to my office for help, they've already suffered a devastating financial loss. And of course, my job is to fight to recover their life savings that was lost as a result of a bad broker. But with this book. I hope that I can help prevent the devastating financial loss before it happens. So fixing my clients' problems is my job, but preventing the problem from happening at the first place is the primary goal of this book. Well, I'll tell you what, if everybody read your book, right, they wouldn't need you, right, Dave? Because then they wouldn't be taken advantage of. People ask me, why did I write this book? I wrote the book so fewer people would ever need to hire an investment fraud like me. I would love my job to be obsolete. And I feel strongly that if you read this book, the chances that you or a loved one will become a victim of investment fraud will decline significantly. Let me tell you an interesting story. This is just from yesterday. I swear this happened. So the book comes out June 8th, but I do have some advanced copies. And a neighbor stopped by uh, and saw the book and, and asked for a copy, so I gave it to him. And just yesterday, this neighbor called my wife, and my wife called my office when I was at the office and let me know. The neighbor read the book. She sat down, and she's about 65 years old. She sat down and she said she read the book from start to finish. And as soon as she got done, she called her husband and they followed the steps in the book. They researched the broker they currently have. And because of what they learned in the book, they changed brokers right then. So I believe because what, what happened when they researched their broker, they found that broker had some prior complaints and they weren't getting the communication that they should be getting based on you know how I describe in the book that a, an advisor should communicate with their client. So they made the decision based on reading this book to fire their current broker and hire a new one. And that right there reduced the chance of, of this person becoming a victim of investment fraud. And I mean, the book isn't even out yet and it feels so wonderful. 
Well, it's out today, or at least at the time of the launch of the, of the podcast. Now, I, I remember you, t- you talk about this one broker in the book where he'd amassed something like over 70 customer complaints. It, it cost his brokerage firm, I think, like $13 million. But he was permitted to, to stay because you know his clients had no idea how bad he was. I mean, I'd love for you to speak to what are some of the specific things that people can do to either like, what are some ways you can actually look up your broker? Or what are some questions you should be asking? So the number one thing that everyone who is working with an advisor or is considering working with an advisor should do today, and they can do it in their pajamas, sitting on their couch, and this is the easiest thing to do, and it's the number one thing uh, that can be done easily to protect you and your life savings, and that's look up your broker on brokercheck.org. It's run by the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority. You can look up your broker by name, by brokerage firm, and it'll pull up the regulatory record. Now, I need to warn everyone, the record is not always complete, and brokers who have complaints that show up on this record can go through a process to erase records, and I'm working hard at the federal level with the Securities Exchange Commission to try to stop that, but it's not perfect, but you can do it right then, and this is what my neighbor did yesterday, and then you can find out if your broker has any prior complaints, uh, if they've had any financial situations, if they've been fired. Uh, and it's the only industry that I'm aware of where you can do that. You can't do that for doctors or lawyers. Um, and again, it's not perfect. And there are some documents that can be erased. But let me show you, let me explain a, a practical. And this the story is in the book. And you reference that. So I had a case, this broker had 70 complaints. And I was the lawyer that represented the the clients. I represented about 65 or 68 of them. These are all retirees. They transferred their money from their, their companies. 401k and profit sharing over to this broker who was with a large firm. And all of them lost about 60 to 70% of their life savings uh, in just under a year. And we sued in in FINRA arbitration, uh, which is where you're required to go to pursue a claim against your broker. And we filed the case and we prevailed and we settled the case for these folks. But now on this broker's record, there are 70 complaints. The broker didn't get fired. He continued to work. And then about two or three years later, I got calls from his clients that followed him to another firm uh, where he was involved in a Ponzi scheme and he ended up going to jail. But my point is, had these folks before they hired him at the second firm where he moved, if they would have gone on broker check and they would have seen 70, I've never seen a broker. I've been doing this for 25 years. I've handled over a thousand individual investor cases against their advisors. I've never seen a broker with that many complaints. The CRD report, which is what is on broker check, uh, it was like 70 pages. And this is something that was available to the public. Now, a lot of people don't know about it. It's not uncommon for folks not to do this, but my primary goal with writing this book is to encourage people to do this because these people likely would not have hired their advisor if they would have known that he had so many prior complaints. And then they would not have become victims of this Ponzi scheme that he ultimately was engaged in. And Dave, I'd love if you could speak to like, what are some of the most common ways you see you know, fraudulent brokers manipulate their clients? And, and also, why is that not something that is addressed or solved or even prevented on the broker side, right? Well, brokerage firms are required to supervise their brokers, and it's gotten a lot better, frankly, over the last 20 or 25 years. But remember, most advisors, most brokers do a a a nice job doing the job that they're required to do. We're talking about a minority, of course, of brokers. But when you've got over a million advisors in this country, even a small percent can cause some devastating harm. But some of the worst things we've seen, and we talk about this in the book, are fake statements. I've seen this over and over, and this, again, particularly with retirees. uh, They have an account at a brokerage firm, 
And then they start getting uh, fake statements uh, from the broker because the broker will hide the actual statements. Maybe they'll change the address. And if the client doesn't have online access to the actual brokerage firm, then they and they start receiving these fake statements. It's unbelievable how real these fake statements can look now, you know, with the technology of printers and all that. So we've had many, many clients. Uh, we had a, a retiree couple, and this gentleman was a physician. He was high up with a uh, hospital, and he they retired. And unbeknownst to them, they had lost most of their money a couple years prior, but they were still receiving statements. It looked like it was coming from the brokerage account, and it had them indicating on the statements that they had all their money. Uh, Their son came for a Christmas holiday and looked at the statements and thought they looked a little odd. So I got the call from the son, and he emailed me the statement. As soon as I looked at it, I know it was fraudulent. Uh, Now, I knew that. They didn't know that. We uh, filed the claim and ultimately was able to resolve it. But fake statements are a big problem. And I talk about things you can do. I talk about in the book things that you can do to minimize the chance of having that uh, situation. But we see that quite a bit. We see a lot of sales of really complex products that, you know, they're called alternative investments. The bottom line, 99% of us will do just fine with stocks and bonds and mutual funds and diversified ETFs. That's what most of us Uh, would be totally appropriate to have in our portfolios. But those don't pay the high commissions that some of these complex alternative investments provide to the brokers. So we've seen private placements, there's ticks, there's REITs, all kinds of complicated products that are being peddled to clients, mostly retirees, because they pay huge commissions. So again, the book talks about ways just to avoid this. But the bottom line is most of us should be diversified with a well-balanced portfolio of equities and bonds and ETFs uh, and not get involved in these crazy outside investments. What about these uh, happiness letters? Yeah, so that's, uh, <laughs> we see a lot of that. So when you, if you have an account with a, a brokerage firm uh, and so if, there's a, if the supervisors notice a problem, they often send what we, what we call happiness letters. And they're letters that say, hey, it's directly to the client and it might be from a branch manager or a supervisor. And sometimes they're very vague about identifying a situation and quote, you know, making sure you're aware of what's happening and sometimes asking you to sign something and return it. Uh, so there's obviously a red flag that the brokerage firm has identified in their broker's accounts for their customers. And so they send the letter and the letter is again, usually vague, usually not something that the clients could understand. So what does the client do? The client or, or the customers calls the broker. I mean, this happens all the time. So they call the broker and say, hey, broker, I got this letter. And the broker typically would say, don't worry about it. It's nothing. I talked to the supervisor. We're fine. Just sign it and send it back or throw it away. So my advice is that happiness letters, which is a red flag indication by the brokerage firm, that should be a red flag to the customer. Hey, there's a problem. I need to go to another advisor. I need to go to a lawyer. I need somebody who's not affiliated with the brokerage firm to uh, review this and see if there's a problem. Because in in my opinion, the relationship between a customer and an advisor, as soon as there's a problem like this, it becomes adversarial because the broker and the brokerage firm is going to, they want to protect their assets. They want to protect their money. That's their number one goal as soon as they've identified a conflict. So there's an issue there where you need somebody who can level the playing field and make sure that your rights are protected. But these letters, and look, some of them are are well thought out. Some of these are very, they're very detailed. But for the most part, they're designed, in my opinion and in my experience, to protect the firm and not the customer. 
And if let's say in the, in the case where an investor feels that, you know, they've been wronged, right? They don't know for sure. Like what, what should their, you know, first few steps be? Well, the one thing they shouldn't do is call the broker or the supervisor. Again, now there's an adverse situation. There's a dispute whether the customer knows it or not. Now there's contrary positions. And the last thing that a customer should do is call the broker or the brokerage firm because then they're going to, again, I see this all the time, they start, quote, an investigation, end quote, and then you might get a letter in a week or so, and the letter is going to explain why in the position of the brokerage firm that the customer doesn't have a case and that uh, they've investigated it fully and determined that the broker didn't do anything wrong. And in those cases, in my opinion, the vast majority of people never take the next step. They believe the broker or the brokerage firm uh, without taking it to you know, a family member, a trusted advisor, a lawyer to make sure that there isn't a problem and to look at the other side of the situation. Man. So, so Dave, while most business owners would love to have nothing to do with the SEC, it sounds like you have a lot to do with the SEC. And, and, and in fact, it, it seems like you speak with them quite frequently. How do you, how do you work with them? Well, I'm currently serving as the president of PIABA, which is the Public Investors Advocate Bar Association. It's an international bar association of lawyers who represent uh, individuals and uh, businesses who have claims against their brokerage firm. We represent investors against the financial services industry. And as president and in prior years as an officer and a board member, we advocate on behalf of individual investors uh, with the SEC, with FINRA. Uh, we issued a report that we just had a press uh, event yesterday issuing a report talking about the problem with brokers erasing their regulatory records, which is what I referenced earlier. There's an expungement process where brokers can erase complaints. And what that does is erase the regulatory records that folks can find on broker check. So we spend a lot of time lobbying uh, the regulators and the SEC to promote investor protection, to promote laws that uh, protect investors because the securities industry has almost an unlimited budget. They've got a tremendous amount of lobbyists and folks that are in the ears of the regulators and legislatures, and the individual investors don't have anyone. We're really their only voice. Uh, there's some other uh, investor-friendly organizations that we team up with, but uh, it's certainly uh, tilted in favor of the securities industry just because they have so much money. But we do a lot of good to advance investor protection, and it's, uh, I'm grateful for the opportunity to do it. Even though David is constantly dealing with manipulative brokers who disregard their clients' best interests out of sheer greed, I've always known him to be an optimist. I asked him how he manages to stay positive while confronting such despicable behavior on a daily basis. Most folks who are referred to us have lost all or a substantial amount of their life savings, and it's devastating. But, you know, the work that we do at, at Meyer Wilson is fight to recover that money. And that's the rewarding part. I mean, the optimist in me is, you know, if there's a valid claim and if there's a collectible firm, and we should talk about that also because that's a big part of the process of selecting an appropriate advisor. But the fact that there is an avenue for recovery in situations where there's inappropriate conduct on behalf of the advisor and a collectible firm, that's what's inspiring. That's why all the lawyers and our staff come to work every day because of the good we can do of, of fixing problems and helping to restore uh, financial stability to our clients. Yeah, so because uh, I was going to ask you, like, what keeps you fighting, right? I mean, there's just because uh, it does seem like the deck is pretty stacked, right? It's it's almost a David versus Goliath scenario every time. Well, 
the worst calls we get, and this is something that I hope can be a lesson learned from reading this book. Most folks don't understand that there are different kinds of brokerage firms and investment advisory firms. A lot of people think that everybody's the same, that XYZ financial advisors the same, and there's a huge difference. We get calls every week. I'm not exaggerating. Every week from folks who have lost their entire life savings with an advisor who is either by him or herself and has no assets, has no firm behind them, or they're with a firm that is undercapitalized and doesn't have the ability to pay a judgment. So even if we went through the whole legal process and recovered an award or a judgment in favor of the investor, if the firm isn't collectible, then there's nothing we can do. And that is, you ask me what keeps me up at night, it's when somebody has called, uh, they have a valid claim, they trusted, unfortunately just trusted the wrong firm or the wrong person, and there isn't an ability to recover because there's no assets at that firm. And I go through in the book, the steps to minimize the chance that you'll ever have that situation by working with a legitimate firm, a large firm who has the ability, would have the ability to pay a judgment. If you work with an advisor who's affiliated with a large name brand firm, and I don't want to say specific names, but we all know who they are. God forbid if there's a problem and this person just takes off and goes to uh, you know, Aruba with all your money, there's still the firm there, right? That's what we can focus on. But if they're by themselves or they're worth a tiny firm that has no assets and they run away, then you know you can't get blood from a turnip. So, and we talk about that in this book. That is a critical issue that we're seeing all the time. And the question I get oftentimes, Michael, is wait a minute, isn't there insurance? Aren't financial advisors and brokers required to have insurance? Uh, I mean, most lawyers around the country by their states are required to have insurance. And uh, it's shocking that there is no mandatory insurance requirement. I, another thing I've been fighting for uh, in my position as president of Piaba is to fight for mandatory insurance because about 25 or 30% of the arbitration awards that we recover on behalf of investors go unpaid. That means somebody has worked their whole life, saved their money, entrusted it with an advisor, an advisor has done something wrong, they hire a lawyer like me, we go through the entire legal process, we win a, a, an award is what it's called in arbitration, and then the firm goes under or they don't pay. That happens about 25 or 30% of the time. And that's just you know devastation on top of devastation because we do everything right, uh, the investor does everything they're supposed to do to protect their rights, and then there's, there's nothing at the end. So there is no insurance requirement. That means if you're working with a brokerage firm that's tiny and you have a problem, there's a chance that you might not be able to recover at the end of a case. So again, the book talks about the different types of brokers, advisors, brokerage firms, and ways to minimize your chance of, of having that problem. Now, I'm curious, is this primarily happening when, or even, even almost exclusively happening when there's a human being involved, right? A financial advisor, a broker. What about like when you look at these like robo advisors, right? Have you seen any incidences of abuse there or is that you know generally mitigated? Well, it's, it's very new. So uh, we're not seeing a lot of that. I know everyone's familiar, you know, with the, with the Robin Hood debacle and, and I'm involved in the first uh, Robin Hood class action that happened uh, in the beginning of the pandemic. There's a lot and there's a lot of interest at the SEC level about uh, starting to regulate really this, the gamification of investments where firms like Robinhood and others just promote the stock trading by kids. I mean, what's happened, uh, you know, right now it's May of, or June of 2020, 
over the pandemic, there hasn't been a, a lot of sports gambling and, and sports. So what's, what a lot of people have done, 18, 19, 20, 20-year-old kids are going to the Robin Hoods of the world and day trading like it's gambling. And that is a huge problem. But my practice is primarily for retirees or retirement savers who entrusted their life savings with an actual financial advisor. The one thing I, I warn against is trying to go alone. Uh, there's a lot of online options for folks to invest themselves. And look, there are ways to open up an account and an online firm and set up a, a diversified allocation of investments for low fees. And if you have an interest yourself of doing that and you want to spend the time, you're able to spend the time to do that and, and you're safe and conservative, then you know that's one way to go. In my opinion, I think it's worth the money to hire a trusted financial advisor. I mean, look, I'm in the business of suing financial advisors and I myself have a financial advisor. So I think that tells you that most folks don't want to take the time or have the expertise or really the interest in managing their own money. And that's why many of us entrust our life savings with financial advisors. So I'm, I'm glad you went there because it, it seems like you almost have like this love-hate relationship with financial advisors in the sense that up until what you just mentioned, you would think that for a financial advisor listening to this or once this, you know, when the book is out, they're not going to be a fan of David Meyer, but it's actually quite the contrary. It's actually the exact opposite. Many of my cases are referred by honest financial advisors because they're out in the field. They're talking to people. They see devastation caused by the bad advisors. They want to help clean up the industry. So the, the good, honest financial advisors who comply with their duties and obligations, and again, that's the majority of advisors out there, they want to see the bad brokers cleaned up, and that's what lawyers like, like me do. So there's no uh, hate with the, the financial services industry for those folks uh, who do what they're supposed to do. I'm here to clean up the bad brokers, and that aligns with the interest of the good financial advisors. Yeah. And David, I want to come back to the book because, you know, you dedicate the book to your wife and kids. And then I, I know you even put your wife in there in the acknowledgments. Let's let's talk about the importance of just having a great support system and not just obviously for writing the book, but really just through this journey you've had over the last few decades. Well, one of the uh, unintended benefits of writing the book uh, just last week with one of the advanced copies, my 17 year old daughter was reading it and she read the first part that talks a little bit about my, back, my background and a couple of the early cases. And she said, Dad, I had no idea you did this. Of course, that was when she either before she was born or, or ver very early. So I'm really happy that now I've got a book that my kids, as they continue to grow, can read and appreciate what we've done. And, and I've been able to do this because of my wife, Melora with the support. I mean, there's just no way any of this would have happened. My firm, my practice, the clients that I've represented or the book without my wife. Uh, and she was also a big part in, in editing the book. She's an English teacher. She taught high school English and, and literature for a long time. And she was my number one editor. And I mentioned this in the book. There was one time when I, I gave her part of the manuscript to read and she has a pen and she never used a red pen. She always liked to use a purple pen because she thought it was you know, easier, um, less aggressive for her students. So she has a purple pen and she circled something, but she was talking about that. I said, well, can you just fix it? I mean, let's do this together. You're my wife, I need help. Please help me fix this. And she just circled it and says, you can do better. So that's what I did. So what I say at the book is I, I very much appreciate my wife always pushing me to be better in life, uh, and also for the book. And Dave, for the listeners of this podcast that are mostly law firm owners, trial attorneys, what, what do you hope their takeaway to be, you know, whether it's from this podcast or the book itself? On the subject matter of the book, 
this book will help the lawyers in their own personal situation. They'll read the book. They too will be much less likely to ever become a victim of investment fraud themselves. It'll also help their, their partners, their colleagues, their parents. I mean, I expect people will take this to their parents and their aunts and their uncles. And so that will help them and their family and anyone else that with for whom they're a trusted advisor. Uh, and also, I, I think, I hope it's inspiring what it's like to build a law firm, you know, start with nothing, uh, one case at a time, and what the unbelievable uh, work that we can do as an opportunity we have as lawyers helping people. Love it. Love it. So at this point, like, what does the future look like for David Meyer? I know you're now the, the president of the OAJ. Like, what, what else, you know, is coming down the pipe for you? Right. I'm also president of the Ohio Association for Justice, which is the uh, Ohio statewide uh, bar association of lawyers. Uh, we do a lot of lobbying, obviously, to protect the interest of the public for that as well. So it's, it's a busy time uh, with the book and, and presidents of two bar association and a busy practice and a great team. You know, we work hard on the on the culture of our firm, thanks to the work we're doing with Crisp. Uh, so it's busy. Uh, I've got a son in uh, college who's, who swims. So that takes a lot of time. And then uh, my daughter as a junior in high school. So I've got a lot of great things going on. I'm grateful uh, for everything I have. And uh, I'm just going to continue to do uh, the great work of the firm and uh, push things forward. Excellent. And, and David, as we come to a close, this being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, uh, you're certainly a game changer in your own right. What, what does being a game changer mean to you? So I think it's expanding your impact to reach more people as you grow in your practice and gain experience in, in your field. I, I talked early on about how as lawyers, we fix problems, right? Something bad has happened. They come to us and our, our job is to fix them. But by expanding our impact, we can prevent problems too. Whether you're a personal injury lawyer who's lobbying to uh, fight for tougher and safer regulations for truckers or someone like me trying to make it safer for individual investors by improving the laws, let's all work beyond the four corners of our office uh, and go above and beyond fixing problems to try to prevent them in the first place. So expanding your impact, that's what I believe uh, it means to be a game-changing lawyer. I wanna give a huge thank you to David Meyer for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated for me was when David said that the best way to solve a problem is to prevent it from happening in the first place. And that's by improving the overall system where it occurred. And this is why David is so passionate about driving change. And that starts with driving awareness and empowering people with the information to make better decisions. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Michael Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you could share the podcast with at least one other ambitious law firm owner who you believe would benefit. And you know what? Maybe more than one. For more information on our interview with David Meyer, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. And join us next time when we'll be speaking with critically acclaimed keynote speaker, New York Times bestselling author and world-renowned leadership expert, John Maxwell. I think humility is essential in, in, in a good leader's life because life keeps changing and only those who keep learning are going to be able to stay with it. Right now, Harvard Business Review said last year, that the average shelf life of a bachelor's degree when you graduate from college is only five years. So five years out of college, honestly, anything you probably learned there, you're never gonna apply in your, in your business. Well then, how do I keep growing and sustaining my business? Well, have a, a teachable spirit. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast.